Hello, I'm Dr. Robert O'Connor, Director of Research for the Irish Cancer Society, and this is Decoding Cancer, the podcast that aims to answer your cancer questions. 2020 has been a challenging year for us all, but not least for those affected by cancer. We know that it's a lonely and isolating experience to receive a cancer diagnosis in normal times without the difficulty of a pandemic and the complications of things like cocooning on top of it. With so much information milling around, what does COVID mean for those affected by cancer, their loved ones and those around them? And how can we all take the best of care of the most vulnerable in our society at this worrying time? And we're going to try and discuss that today. Joining me to discuss these topics, I have two excellent guests in the form of Medical Virologist and Chair of the Expert Group for the National Public Health Emergency Team, or NEFIT as it's become commonly known, Dr Killian de Gascon. And I'm delighted to have you here, Killian. But I'll come first to our fellow guest, Jan Rin. Jan was diagnosed nine years ago with CLL, and she and her husband, Michael, run a group to advocate for those affected by this type of blood cancer. Jan, as someone who is living a full family life against the backdrop of ongoing treatment, perhaps you might tell us about your own situation and experience over this last year and how the pandemic has impacted you. Yeah, sure. Hi, Rob. So um, I was diagnosed with uh, CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia uh, nine years ago now. Um, And for those who don't know, uh, CLL is a cancer of the B cell. So effectively, it's a cancer of the immune system. Um, so even in pre-COVID times, I would have been, it would have been necessary for me to take lots of precautions around, um, you know, uh, infections and um, avoiding sick people and using my hand sanitizer and all that stuff. Um, so I was, you know, really, really ill for about three years. And um, then I was one of the fortunate people. I managed to gain access to a clinical trial for one of the newer novel therapies. And I'm continuing on that trial today, actually. So six years later, I still take this novel drug. Um, I've been really lucky in that it has massively reduced my disease burden and it has improved my functionality, um, but it hasn't cured me. I'm still hopeful there's a cure out there somewhere, maybe. But at the moment, my disease is considered incurable. So with that, you know, kind of the carrying that burden, you can imagine um, COVID was a very unwelcome addition to the mix. And what, what kind of things has COVID meant for you and, you know, especially your family? You have a, a school going family, I believe. Yeah, so I have there's four children in my house, although two of them aren't kids anymore. They're nearly adults. So, yeah, we we sat down as a family and we really had to um, look at the information we were getting at the time. So. Uh, we were very conscious of international studies about blood cancer patients specifically. So I, this is more about me and not necessarily across the board for every cancer patient. But we knew that, um, you know, the likelihood of, of me contracting COVID was probably four times greater than the average person. And, uh, you know, the chances, the mortality risk is kind of, it's pretty high. It's around 37%. So kind of with all that information there in the background, we decided that the two older children who were working and socialising should probably move out of the home. And that's what happened. They've, they've left home. And the two younger kids who are with us, school-going kids, have remained home from school. And I know that's a pretty controversial decision. And again, you know, it's not for everybody, but it was something we chose to do um, to mitigate the risk for me, basically, and to keep me safe. So that's a, a fascinating insight, Jan, because I think you've outlined that the stakes are particularly high for, for you and for your family. 
uh, and that there's been a, really a huge impact uh, and disruption on on your normal um, your normal life. Not to talk about the medical side of things, which we may get to um, later in the conversation. So, Killian, our, our listeners won't be surprised to hear that you're a busy man, and we're honoured to have you here to explain uh, what COVID means for vulnerable people like cancer patients. But maybe first you might tell us, um, if you don't mind, what does NEFIT do and what's your role in the organisation? Uh, hi, Rob. Yeah, thank you for having me on the, the podcast today. NEFIT, is, as people will know, and as you've said, is the, the National Public Health Emergency Team. And its role is very much to collate, I suppose, analyse the data around SARS-CoV-2 infection or, or COVID in Ireland. And on the basis of, of the data that we analyse, to provide advice to government as to how best to to manage the the public health emergency in, in which we now find ourselves. So NEFIT would have been convened um, probably back in January and the very early days of the pandemic. And obviously at that stage, it was more around pandemic preparation. We had no cases in Ireland at the time and it was about trying to ensure that the the measures were in place for when cases would arrive um, and obviously then in, on February 29th, we had our first case and things escalated fairly quickly after that. I suppose our first our first big decisions people might remember back would have been around the, the Ireland-Italy game in, in Lansdowne Road, which was, uh, which was postponed. And then subsequently, um, the celebrations around St. Patrick's Day, I suppose they would have been the first two big decisions purely on the basis that we were bringing large numbers of people together in, into a congregated setting. And we knew there'd be lots of singing and celebrating and probably uh, taking of alcohol and socialising, which we know now is, and we knew back then, was likely to be very high risk for a pathogen of of this nature. So really since in the intervening, what, 10 months now, we meet on a weekly basis at the moment. We would have met more frequently at times um, over the course of the pandemic, but at the moment we're meeting weekly. Um, we're looking at the, the number of cases over the previous week. We're looking at the 14-day cumulative incidents. We're looking at the, the geographic distribution of um, the infection in Ireland. Uh, we take a lot of our data from the modelling group, which is chaired by Professor Philip Nolan. And also there's an awful lot of information provided to NEFIT by the Health Protection Surveillance Centre. And they collate information from the laboratories around the country and all of the regional departments of public health. So um, NEFIT is, I suppose, one of the, the final ports of call for the data before it gets shared with government. But there's a huge, um, massive level of teamwork, if you like, um, behind NEFIT. And, uh, and we're just really working with the data that they're those teams are providing to us from across the country. And it really comes back to the public health officials on the ground who are collating the information, investigating outbreaks, investigating the location of clusters, and then sharing those data with the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, and then it's fed on to NEFIT. You know, it's it's fascinating to think all of those things are 10 months ago. I have to say, from my own perspective, it seems like almost a generation ago, there's been so many decisions um, and so many different things have happened to us since. And actually pulling out, you know, a little teasing out that a little bit. Um, we knew very little at the beginning, but we've gradually come to learn more about the disease, about the virus, how it uh, is transmitted to people and its impact. So what do we know about the impact uh, on vulnerable people in our society, including those who are affected by cancer? Well, the Health Protection Surveillance Centre actually collates a, a report on this. And we we know that the majority of people who either end up in hospital or intensive care um, with COVID-19 or who, who pass away as a result of COVID-19 
typically of underlying infections or underlying illnesses rather. And if we look at those um, from the report that the Health Protection Surveillance Centre has put together, uh, we know that chronic respiratory disease or hypertension or chronic heart disease, diabetes mellitus, um, chronic neurological disease and then cancer or chronic kidney disease uh, would all be there as risk factors that seem to make the disease more severe. I think it's important that we separate out the two issues. There's no, there's not a huge amount of evidence that these people are more likely to acquire the infection. Your risk of acquiring the infection is probably equivalent uh, with the exception of perhaps a, a group of individuals who, uh, who are immunosuppressed. And obviously that would uh, link back into patients who either have cancer who are maybe on treatment for, for certain forms of cancer. Uh, but once the infection takes hold, then um, people in these cohorts tend to be more severely affected by the illness once, uh, once they are actually infected. And really, it comes down to their, their capacity and their ability to mount an immune response. And I suppose I'm not an immunologist, so I don't want to get, um, I don't want to pretend that I am. But I suppose the more we learn about um, the, the chronic conditions that we're talking about, the likes of chronic kidney disease or uh, diabetes mellitus, we we know that, and even obesity, we know that all of these conditions tend to, to feed into um, a, a mild form of immune suppression. So these people don't have a normal immune system, even though they might not have what we would typically describe as an immunocompromising condition. Uh, their immune system isn't completely normal, so therefore if they get a, a significant infection like SARS-CoV-2, it can cause quite a significant amount of damage and they can't necessarily mount an effective immune response the, the same way as that someone who, who doesn't have those underlying conditions would be able to do. I, I suppose as well, would it be fair to say that many people affected by cancer and some of those other conditions tend to be a bit older as well and we see a disproportionate number of older people affected by the more serious complications. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the challenges i suppose with with these types of infections and and teasing out the the implications of of these data is, is how much it's related to to cancer for example and how much it's related to relates to other conditions um or, or other sort of uh say confounding factors and you said age would be one of those or, you know perhaps people who smoke that would be another sort of confounding factor that might not be teased out um and similarly then the, the treatment that people are receiving and obviously the nature of, of, the, of the cancers, uh, as Jan has indicated, sort of different um, forms of cancer, whether they affect the blood or whether they affect solid organs, uh, might have different, significantly different implications. But you've touched on the issue around age there. And certainly, like we have seen over the last um, 10 months of the pandemic, the, the median age of those who have died as a result of COVID-19 in Ireland is over 80. Um, with, the, uh, with the mean age of, of 81. And the other thing that we've seen, unfortunately, is that the majority of deaths, sort of over 44% of our deaths are occurring in those aged greater than 85 years. Um, and obviously that's something that we saw significantly during the first wave uh, associated with residential care facilities. Thankfully, those facilities haven't been as badly affected um, in the second wave but we're still seeing a significant number of deaths over, over the last couple of months. And unfortunately, it is the, the most vulnerable and, and the, the eldest in our communities that are being disproportionately affected as a result of that. Of course, as well, and uh, there are knock-on effects of, of COVID being in our health system in terms of capacity and so on. So all of those figures 
really reflect a functional um, health system. And we've been reasonably fortunate that that most treatments have managed to keep going. But um, in the event of a, our health system being overwhelmed, that's a much more direct impact in, in treatment of those conditions. Would, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's a really important point because I suppose I've been struck by some of the narrative over the last number of months that um, protecting our healthcare service is perceived as some kind of you know, cosmetic exercise or face-saving exercise for the health service executor or for the Department of Health. And I think that's really inappropriate. What we're, The reason we're trying to protect our health service is so that we can save lives at the end of the day. None of us wants to be in a position where that we have seen in other countries, um, I suppose probably, perhaps most strikingly in Italy back during the first wave, where access to intensive care had to be rationed, access to ventilators had to be rationed, and, and young people in their 40s, 50s and 60s, we're not getting access to, to critical care. So I think it's really important that we remember the reason we're protecting our, our health service and the reason we're trying to keep cases down in the community is because we know that the best way to protect access to the health services, the best way to protect our, our vulnerable populations is to reduce the amount of virus activity in the, in the community. Because once it crosses a critical threshold, uh, a percentage of those individuals will end up in hospital, a percentage will end up in intensive care, and a percentage will end up dying. So the idea of protecting our healthcare service, as I said, isn't about, uh, it's not a meaningless exercise. It's vital for us to to save lives. And what we've been able to do, thanks to the efforts of, of everybody across society in this second wave over the last few months, is that we've been able to continue to provide non-COVID-related care in our hospitals that we weren't able to do back in it's with March, April and May time. And, and obviously in the context of, of cancer, whether it be whether it be screening, whether it be um, the treatment of symptomatic individuals or whether it be people who are already on their treatment journey, uh, it's really important that we're able to continue to provide access to non-COVID care because this virus is, is going to be with us for, for a long time, I would imagine. So it's, it's important that we can ensure that normal medical care is, is provided as, as it would have been back in uh, 2019. Uh, one final query on, on just on that thread. Um, we talk about cancer and cancer experience in a general way, but are, are all cancers, do they have the same risk or, or are there subtleties within there, you know, based on some of those things around different forms of cancer, different treatments, different ages and so on? That's a, that's a really good question, Rob. And I, I unfortunately, I don't think that I can give you a a definitive answer. It's uh, probably not really my area, but but certainly I suppose my understanding of it is is that you're absolutely right. That depending on the different treatments that people are on, and depending on the underlying um, biology of their of their individual cancer, uh, you're right that there are different cohorts who will be um, I suppose disproportionately affected, uh, depending on on the nature of their malignancy. And certainly, we know that the immune response to, to SARS-CoV-2 is vitally important, both for resolution of the acute infection and also hopefully for longer-term protection. So I suppose we could, we could imagine a situation where by those individuals who are, uh, whose malignancy affects their, uh, the capacity of their immune response to respond to infection, or perhaps if the treatment uh, has a, an impact on that capacity to respond, are probably more likely to be infected. But equally, um, you might have a situation whereby a, a cancer affects a, a solid organ, um, for example, say the lungs, and the chemotherapeutic agent may there may be some lung damage as a result of previous treatment or a result of radiotherapy, 
Uh, and if the virus gets into those individuals, uh, it can cause significant organ damage and they don't necessarily have the reserve that somebody without the underlying disease would have. So it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag, but you're, but you're right. Not all um, patients, I suppose, would be susceptible to the same degree. Jan, I might pass back to you. Uh, and so Killian has been describing some of the challenges um, for those affected by different forms of cancer and at different stages and so on. Does that resonate with your own experiences? Does, you know, what has been the impact uh, on the ground for somebody affected by cancer over the last 10 months? Yeah, well, certainly from our our feedback from our CLL community, um, we're definitely hearing uh, from patients, you know, there's a whole lot of anxiety about uh, what the right thing to do is. How do they navigate life effectively, you know, co-COVID? A lot of patients are worried about hospital, hospital appointments and doctor consultations. And, you know, overall, you touched on it earlier, Rob. At the moment, the hospitals are safe and we would be advising patients to attend their appointments because, you know, if you've got cancer, it's pretty serious already. So let's not make it even more serious. And, you know, treatments are clinically indicated. So let's let's do them and let's get them. Uh, from, from my own personal perspective, I didn't have a choice. I, I received supportive uh, immunoglobulin infusions and those were cancelled for four months during the initial stages of COVID, the initial lockdown. Um, and that had an impact on me. Um, it certainly, um, you know, I wouldn't have voted to not have it. And I was very happy when they started up again, when the infusion started up again. But that's not necessarily the case for all patients. I, I understand there's still a lot of anxiety for people out there. Um, and then, you know, the other side of that is that a lot of our doctor appointments and consultation appointments are, are happen, happening virtually now or indeed as a phone consultation. And I suppose, you know, with, within the CLL community and presumably the broader cancer community, that has a kind of a, a mixed um, a mixed response. Some patients are not comfortable with just the phone consultation and they'd, they'd like to see their doctors in person. Um, and that might not always be possible. Some consultants are choosing to do phone or Zoom consultations. With a disease like CLL, for instance, um, there's a whole cohort of patients who are on active surveillance and that's how we measure disease progress. So it would be potentially, you know, anxiety provoking for a patient to not have those appointments. So we're seeing challenges then in terms of the kind of communication around appointments, as well as changes in treatment. And, and some of those could be very worrying. Would that would that be a fair summary of, of what you're saying? Yeah, I think I think, you know, cancer patients are already are worried and then throw in a global pandemic. And, you, you know, you've got a recipe for people who are, are really, you know, struggling here with the challenges that this presents. Um, and, you know, a, a, a cancer broadly um affects as as you as you rightly touched on earlier affects people differently and people are at different stages in treatment and at different stages on, on the journey so to speak but there's no doubt about it that we're you know we're hearing that we potentially would do worse with covid so that puts certainly puts people in a position where they're fearful and i, I suppose it's not knowing what the right thing to do is and you know this idea that um uh, initially, when when COVID was around, the idea that 
really safe place was at home and we we or we have people who might be you know uh, disinfecting packages and post and shopping everything that comes into the house when do we wear masks are masks always indicated at any time once you leave the house um how do you interact with family members if you're the vulnerable person or the immune compromised person in the house it, like, so it has such a far-reaching effect we have people who've had to work leave work potentially or work from home that puts an added pressure a financial pressure on people and also there's the pressure of everyone trying trying to work virtually and that, and they, that presents its own challenges so there you know i suppose cancer patients um it's you know it's like everyone in the world is having to grapple with these issues and then it's multiplied for cancer patients generally and and the, there are a myriad of challenges going forward and continue to be, uh, particularly as the latest restrictions are being eased again and we're heading into the festive season. And, you know, certainly, you know, in our in our community, we're, we're being asked about what the right thing to do is there. And it would be great if there was an easy answer there, that you know, a, a bog standard answer. But again, it is back down to this, this piece about personal responsibility and vulnerable people taking responsibility and putting, you know, mitigating risk as much as possible. And that might mean different things to different people so yeah overall it it's certainly a, a challenging time thanks jan and, and killian i might maybe draw out on on some of um, jan's questions there maybe give you the opportunity to maybe give some advice there and, and i'm particularly conscious of the analogy that uh, some academics, in particular Professor Ian McKay, has used around the, this kind of Swiss cheese analogy of, of layers of different things, that there isn't per se one guaranteed surefire thing that an average human being can do that will guarantee um, protection. So could you maybe you know, give us some advice arising out of uh, Jan's questions there about what are the best ways to keep vulnerable people, including those affected by cancer, safe um, for them and, and for those around them? Yeah, it's interesting that you um, allude to uh, Professor McKay's Swiss cheese model. I, I owe him royalties at this stage. I've been using quite a bit. Um, I, I think it's really difficult, and and I, I sort of I, I certainly I sympathise with Jan massively because, as she said, it would be really nice if we could give uh, straightforward measures that everybody could follow, and then protection would be guaranteed. And unfortunately, just given the nature of this infection, it's not really feasible for us to do that. But there are certain things I think that, in addition to the personal responsibility, there are certain things that obviously come under the, the heading of, of shared responsibilities and things that we expect, I suppose, government or society as a whole to put in place to provide that sort of protection. And that comes down to the likes of the, the testing and tracing program. It comes down to the likes of, uh, you know, coherent messaging from government and, and indeed from ourselves at NEFIT and then financial support for those businesses who who can stay open in the context of, of the pandemic for whatever reason. Um, I think quarantine and isolation, I think, is, is really important. And I think probably that's perhaps that's one of the difficulties or one of the, the areas where we possibly haven't performed quite as well as we might say for for people in vulnerable groups who are being asked to cocoon and restrict movements. I think they look to airports and they look to seaports and can't understand why there's not a, a, a comprehensive you know, mandatory sort of quarantine periods for, for travellers coming into the country because they may be coming from 
uh, countries that have a significantly higher level of infection than, than Ireland does. And I think when you're trying to support individuals and trying to bring the public along with the message, uh, I think it's very difficult when you're when they can look to um, perhaps inconsistencies or uh, measures within in that system that aren't fair. But to come back to the the personal responsibility part, it it really just does come down to minimizing contacts as as much as possible and purely because this virus is transmitted from person to person we believe that um it's not you know it's where there has been discussion around the possibility of of airborne transmission we don't believe that's a significant driver of the infection because the public health measures that we put in place prior to this wouldn't really have had the effect that they've had if airborne transmission were a significant element. So you really need to be in close contact with somebody who is either symptomatic or pre-symptomatic for uh, a reasonable period of time um, to get infected with this uh, condition. And while we know, again, we know that people without symptoms are capable of transmitting the infection, generally speaking, that's in probably in, in a day or two before they actually develop symptoms, so they tend to be more pre-symptomatic. So it comes down to the idea of of face coverings or masks it comes down to physical distancing and it does come down to to minimizing um contacts and ideally sort of sticking to a close a sort of bubble we never really adopted the the the, the idea or the concept of, of bubbles sort of formally here i suppose as much as say the likes of perhaps new zealand did back in the early days but it's certainly i think a, a valid concept for for people to use be it in a, in a family or a slightly extended family setting or perhaps for people who live by themselves, because I think that's another group, in addition to those who are vulnerable, that have been probably very um, significantly affected by by this pandemic. There's there's so much, like we're social animals, we rely on human contact and human interaction. So for people living by themselves, I think having the opportunity to to bubble up with a, another household so that they can have some interaction, I think is really important as well. But you're right. There's there's no single measure that we can that we can implement, and until until and even after uh, the vaccines come on stream next year, uh, I think we're still going to have to continue with the basic hygiene measures that have been there. And and I think people have to, uh, from an individual level, have to look at the number of people that they want to interact with, who where their priorities lie, and and just to be careful and you know also avoid those settings if they're. If they make a plan to go to a whether it's an, an occasion or um, you know whether it's to go into a shop or whether it's to go into a, a, a restaurant setting, if they feel if they don't feel safe in that setting, then obviously we're encouraging them to to leave that setting and, and not to take on any unnecessary risks because uh, it's just not worth it. Jan, I might ask you something if you don't mind that that struck me there from what Killian was saying, and he was talking about the the human side of it and mentioned a number of different kind of human implications. I, I'm a parent, same as yourself. I've one son rather than four children, and it just struck me that must have been a really tough decision to sit down with four kids, knowing you know each of them having their own lives and and their own desires and and all of that. Uh, how did you, how did you go about that and and how do you even start to have a conversation um and and how can somebody outside of that understand the difficulty in talking to your children and the things that a, a pandemic like this can force in a conversation yeah yeah but yeah you, you've touched on something very um important and really and topical for us rob and i suppose 
you know, my kids, um, you know, they've known about my disease for a long time. So there's been many conversations in our house and I, because I had to access um, treatment abroad, there, were, there was a lot of time when I wasn't here. Um, so they've, we've always been open with them. So immediately once COVID came into the picture, um, you know, it, it almost was a conversation that didn't necessarily have to happen. Everybody knew straight away, oh, oh gosh, we're going to have to take extra precautions here. So we would have been that family at the very start who welcomed the school closures in March Um and at that stage, nobody quite knew it was all very early. And uh, we had a, at that stage, we had a leaving search um, student in the house as well. So um, we all know that th- that didn't happen. But we were plunged at that stage into cocooning as a family and, you know, arguing over broadband. And, you know, it was as the restrictions began to ease that the problems kind of became more apparent for us here because, I had two older kids who have got social lives and they had part-time jobs and they want to move around and not feel so constricted. So, yeah, it was a conversation. It was more than one conversation. It was many conversations. And then it was, you know, a decision we came to as a family that that the older ones should go. It's it, What we've done is that they don't, they're not very far away geographically. And throughout the summer, we were able to manage it a lot better because the weather obviously was better. So they would come to the garden almost every day. We did lots of outdoor meetings and um, outdoor coffees and walks, that kind of thing. It's, it's a little bit more challenging right now. Um, and actually one of, one of my children will be, she'd be work to be back to work now in the hospitality sector, which means we'll see even less of her and, you know, potentially Christmas will look very different for us. I'm not sure how we're going to manage that piece. And with the, and with the younger two kids, uh, again, really, really difficult decision, um, which, which actually, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, it's a controversial decision to keep the younger ones home from school with us. Um, unsupported currently by department guidelines and also by schools. So we're figuring that one out as we go. We're doing lots of online tuition. I do have one of the kids as an exam year student, so she's doing her, her junior cert this year. And um, I'm very conscious of the potential impact on their mental health. And, um, you know, that's something that we talk about almost on a daily basis here now uh, with them. And we're very open about it. There is no doubt it's a really tough road and we've taken it. um, And I suppose on those days when I feel like they might have done better in school, you know, I have to, you know, the argument would be that actually the impact on their mental health would be worse if they were feeling unsafe in a school setting, particularly if, God forbid, if, you know, anything did happen. And we know there have been outbreaks in schools and in, in their schools and in local schools. So we're, we're figuring it out. It's definitely not an easy road. It's definitely not for the faint hearted. Um, and it's all part of that bigger picture, that bigger conversation that started for us nine years ago when this diagnosis happened and, um you know, because I it, my disease is still incurable, chronic, potentially lifelong. Um, unfortunately, you know, family members are taken along on that journey, um, with with you when you're a cancer patient, and and that's uh, and that's just kind of from our perspective, that's where we're going, you know, and that's how we're managing it. Killian, I, I might pass the, the last question by you. And, and I suppose we've all been very buoyed by the reports we've seen in the media around the development of vaccines. And, you know, everybody's very excited to hear uh, around the, the rapid development of vaccines. But is it fair to say, and you kind of touched on this earlier, is it fair to say it's, it's hardly going to be a magic wand that will sort all these problems out in, in January 1? 
that you know things aren't going to be fixed instantly. So what what is a realistic picture maybe for the next year or two that we might expect uh, as vaccines come into um, to usage in Ireland? Yeah, it's, it's another really good question, Rob, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Uh, I think what's been very positive with the news that we've heard from the various companies that it was albeit only in press release form at this stage we haven't seen the scientific data to think that we could have two vaccines within the within the space of 12 months of identifying or discovering this new infection uh, that two vaccines that would have an efficacy rate of um, 90 to 95 percent I think is really a phenomenal um, scientific achievement even if in the real world they probably won't perform quite to that level for for a variety of reasons. But even if we get something in the region of 80 to 85%, it would be really impressive. I think the the challenge will be, um, what we don't yet know is what the duration of protection will be, uh, assuming it works. We also don't know whether, we know that based on what we've been told, we know that the vaccines can protect against severe disease and protect against um hospitalization i think but what we don't know at this stage is whether they can prevent transmission so for example if i get vaccinated and then uh, can i still get infected even if i don't get sick can i then transmit the virus onto other people you know perhaps to somebody in a vulnerable group so i think that's probably the challenge so i think the benefit the short-term benefit that i see from the vaccination program is that hopefully it'll be able to protect our vulnerable groups hopefully it'll be able to protect our healthcare workers and it should result, it should stop people getting sick so that they have to go into hospital or that they end up in intensive care and hopefully it'll save lives. I think the question for me at this stage is, is what will the impact be just from a public health perspective? Because, for example, if the if the vaccine is, is 80 to 85 percent protective um, or effective rather, and how do you know if you're one of the people that is protected or you're one of the people who isn't protected? So I think we'll to come back to um, Professor McKay's uh, Swiss cheese model. The vaccine is is another another slice of cheese in that model. It's a really it's a really important one, and I think it will give us an opportunity to open up society and to ease restrictions a little bit more. I would hope, uh, but really we still have to wait and see how effective it's going to be in the real world. And as I said, that real quest, that very important question as to whether it can prevent. Um, onward transmission um, rather than just preventing disease because if it can't prevent onward transmission then we're still all going to be capable of of passing on this infection uh, to to our loved ones and, and to um, you know to our grandparents and our parents and our and our family members and our friends with uh, with underlying conditions and I think the the one good news that came out from the Oxford AstraZeneca group is that they did actually screen their um, vaccines they screen their study participants on a regular basis. So they've certainly given us, an in, given us an indication that their vaccine is capable of preventing asymptomatic infection, if you like, and, and preventing onward transmission. Uh, but obviously, we still need to see that the scientific data for that. But if I could just come back to one point that, that Jan made, and I think it's really d- difficult from, a, I say, in the setting of a, a public health emergency, is that the type of data that we analyse at, at NEFET and the type of recommendations that we give to to government they always work really well at a population level it's very easy at a population level to say the majority of people for example will be fine or you know the majority of settings are okay but i think 
just listening to, to Jan speak, when you come down to the individual level, sometimes what happens at a population level isn't really relevant to you because, you know, while schools may in general be safe, if, if your school has a, if your child's school has an outbreak and you're a, a parent with a, a, an immunosuppressing condition or with an underlying malignancy, then it becomes very real and, and the population level advice perhaps isn't as helpful for you. So I think that's often one of the things that I think in, in medicine sometimes we forget. We, we talk about populations um, and sometimes we maybe forget the, the, the individual and that the, what happens for a population, what applies to a population can't necessarily be extrapolated for an individual because for an individual um, something only has to happen once, whereas at a population level you can you can get away, you can tolerate that sort of uh, percentage, if you like, or that proportion. Okay, um, thanks very much for that um, detailed explanation, Killian. And, and I guess um, there's a mood for for cautious optimism from what you're saying, albeit we will need to be careful for some time yet to help ensure and protect those most vulnerable around us, as, as Jan has been outlining. I'd like to say I'm, I'm hugely grateful to you both, to, to Jan and Killian, for their really honest and straightforward insight. Uh, and I'm sure I speak for everybody in, in wishing you both the very best of luck in what you're doing, particularly in, in the next months ahead. I just thought it also important to expand on some of the earlier points by pointing out that, yes, excellent medical care is continuing throughout the pandemic, as, as Jan mentioned, and maintaining that care um, that we need requires effort by us all. And we are doing a fabulous job on an individual level and a community level in, in maintaining and protecting our health service. Um, and I suppose if there are people out there who notice changes in their health, go and talk to your doctor. If you have an upcoming appointment in the hospital, make contact with them, but um, you know, reassure yourself, but do go and do keep attending uh, and your expert medical team won't see you wrong. If you'd like to find out more about the support and the vital research work undertaken by the Irish Cancer Society, you can visit www.cancer.ie. And anyone who would like help or advice on any of the topics we've touched on today can contact our dedicated Irish Cancer Society support line on free phone 1-800-200-700 or on email supportline at irishcancer.ie to speak to one of our cancer nurses. Be sure to tune in next week as we find out how you can hack your health and pick up the early signs of cancer like the experts do. This has been Decoding Cancer for the Irish Cancer Society. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.